Our Father, for so many of us, Jesus Christ has become the beautiful Savior, the one who is more fair than we than we have ever found in any other place, in any other person. He is the one who became poor so that we might become rich. He was the one that lived the life that we should have lived in abject obedience and then went on to die the death that we should have died, the one that sinners should have died because of their rebellion before the God who has, had made them. And then there came a time in our lives when we saw our sin perhaps for the first time and then someone told us about the Savior and indeed He has become in our eyes altogether lovely. Fair is the Lord Jesus. Beautiful is that Savior to us who have been purchased with the price of His blood. And we stand here this morning as men and women not belonging to ourselves, but belonging to Him. The One who gave Himself up for us. And then offering to us a gift of eternal life that was received by so many of us by the hand of faith. And so we come to sing of a truth that Jesus Christ is not only fair, but beautiful and just and righteous and holy and He is our Savior. I pray, O God, that you will use this congregation to demonstrate to the world that their perhaps preconceived notions of who Jesus is are wrong. That Christians are not people who have committed themselves to a particular moral ethic, but Christians are people who know a person. That we have received a Savior that we have been made sons and daughters by your grace. And Father, might we live to proclaim to lost and dying men that their greatest need is to have their sin forgiven and to be set right with the King of Kings. Our Father, we pray that as all those people ran past our building this morning, that something might have been said to them that you by your spirit might have whispered in their ears that there's something in there for you. There's something eternal and everlasting. And I pray, Father, that you might bring people into this place where they might find this beautiful Savior. Oh, God, we still have grave concerns for our nation and where she stands and pray that you will use us as a congregation to influence this little portion of the nation we pray, O oh God, that our president would be protected, that you would give him wisdom from on high, and that he would lead the, the world of free and democratic nations into a place where Jesus Christ is exalted and lifted up on high. Now, Father, accept our gifts. Compared to what's left in our checking accounts, they're small. But use them, O oh God to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and that only. We pray, of course, in his name. Amen. And open them with me to the book of Luke, chapter 19. 
Luke chapter 19, we'll begin reading at verse 28. Luke 19, verse 28. You follow in your copies as I read to you from God's inerrant word. Luke chapter 19, at verse 28. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter it, or enter, you will find a coat tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with the loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I can't speak for other preachers, but I know this preacher. Every time I get behind this pulpit, I, I have a sense of, of responsibility to take whatever text that we're looking at and use it to um, teach some lesson and uh, then allow you or give you something to leave with in which you can sink your teeth. Some, some kind of application, some kind of uh, meat on which you can gnaw for a few days. Uh, to, to, to change or to bring us more into conformity with Jesus Christ. Uh, when you preach on a text like this one, which is a, an event in the life of Jesus Christ, things are a little bit different. Because as I think you already know, the, the whole object of Christianity is to know Christ. It is not to, um, to call you to some kind of morally restrained life. It's to introduce you to Christ, to tell you all about him and to have you chase after him 
to have him become the, the highest loyalty in your life. So my, my point simply is this. When you preach on, a, on an event in the life of Christ, once the event has been explained and illustrated and, and opened up for you, I, I feel like my job has been done. There's really no need to give you some kind of, okay, now go do this. Because if I have, if I have placarded before you Jesus Christ in all of his beauty, then that is the object. That's the sum of it all. Is to introduce you to this person and to, and to show you to him in all of his beauty. And to show you what he did and what he said and taught. Well, this is not a teaching passage before us this morning. The, the triumphal entry is not a teaching passage. It's just a description. Oh, there are some lessons to be learned in it, uh, for sure. But there's what it is, is simply an event in the life of Christ, as you know, which uh, commences the last week in Jesus' life. And everything about it, everything about this event is, is extraordinary. There's something notable about everything in it. And I want to draw your attention to just the extraordinary nature of the event. And if I do that well, then in terms of trying to give you a lesson to leave with, I won't need to do that. Because all you need to know is more about Jesus Christ. As I said, everything about this event is notable. It's noteworthy. I want you to see, I have in mind four things that, I, that will illustrate how extraordinary this event is. The first thing has to do with how Jesus entered in the first place. Now, gang, in, um, in the ancient Mideast, uh, these people were used to having military conquest and generals uh, bring in or have parades through their cities. And the Romans, particularly, had kind of set the stage as to how this was to be done. There was almost a format uh, that, you, that, you had, uh, that you conducted when you had one of these triumphal entries. Well, here's what you would do. You would, uh, you would put in front, of course, the conquering general, and he would be in all of his uh, military finest, um, and he would be riding in some chariot being drawn by some beautiful white steed. And right behind him would be his honor guard with their brass all, with their, uh, their armor all polished and, and they're looking their absolute military best. And then after them would come the defeated people. All in shackles and chains and tattered clothes and dirty and filthy and defeated and, and, and mixed in with those people would be the spoils of the victory. All the gold that they had brought or the cattle or the sheep, whatever it was. And then finally, uh, bringing up the end, of course, in between the two uh, groups of soldiers, was the army that fought the battle and, and, and won the victory. And, of course, the only thing that was really similar about those kinds of triumphal entries and the one that you see here is that on occasion um, there would be the palm branches being waved because that was a symbol of victory. But compare that, ladies and gentlemen, to the way that Jesus enters. First of all, he, uh, he enters as a pauper king riding on a donkey. And not an almost, I mean, it's a real donkey, but it's a baby donkey. I mean, it's a young donkey. There he is seated on a donkey, and the only saddle he has for the donkey is his disciples' clothing. And uh, he is surrounded by a bunch of peasants uh, as they uh, file into Jerusalem 
And um, they are shouting all these hosannas uh, uh, and waving palm branches that they took off of somebody else's trees. In fact, compared to what this populace was used to, what Jesus does is nothing more than something to laugh at. It was, it was something worth, uh, you know, poking the Pharisee next to you in the, in the side and saying, is this the most, not most, the most ridiculous display you've ever seen? There was only one thing in it that really upset the, uh, the, the people who so hated Jesus, and that was the, the cries of these people when they said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And of course you see them saying, shut him up, shut him up. And they can't even bring themselves, the only thing, they, the, the best they can bring themselves to do is to call him teacher. And of course, Jesus' response is, um, um, you know, if, if, if they don't shout, then, um, then the rocks will cry out. What other event do you know of that would cause rocks to start crying? Pearl Harbor? The crash of 29? September the 11th? But um, the, the point I'm simply making is, Compared to what military kings and conquerors normally did, what Jesus does is, is laughable. It's ludicrous. It's, it's so monumentally different from the norm. The, the second thing that I think makes this so notable is who it is that engineers it in the first place. Now, gang, um, I, I think you probably already know this, but this event is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. Um, so apparently it was, it was a really a big deal for those who wrote the New Testament, and they all wanted to include it, and they all make the emphasis that Jesus is the one that originates this thing. If you'll notice in verses 28 and following, Jesus is the one that takes two disciples aside and says, Okay, fellas, um, I want you to go and get a, co- uh, get a, get a donkey because I need to ride it into the city. Jesus is out front leading this thing, architecting it, engineering it, and uh, begins, he begins this whole triumphant entry with instructions from him to two of his disciples. Now, gang, that is in and of itself a radical shift from the way things used to be done. From the policies and the procedures of what Jesus used to do, well, it doesn't compare. You know, when Jesus healed people, he would take them aside and say, now, don't go tell anybody about this. Let's just keep this between us, you know. On one occasion, ladies and gentlemen, that's recorded in John 7, um, Jesus is entering Jerusalem for the Passover, and he does it secretively. That is, he disguises himself and sneaks into the city. His actions heretofore had been downright furtive. But on this occasion... Everything changes. His whole modus operandi is different on this occasion than his entire ministry prior to this moment. Jesus is out front. Jesus is calling the shots. And what you see here in this event is tantamount to a public disclosure and claim to Messiahship. He had tried to keep that under wraps for three years. But not now. He goes out of his way. To fulfill a piece of Old Testament prophecy that's recorded for you in Zechariah 9. You remember that little Zechariah 9 statement in verse 9 where it says, Behold your king, he comes riding on a donkey. 
Jesus goes out of his way to make sure that if there's any confusion about who is who he claims to be, that that's all cleared up in this event. Jesus makes, by doing what he does, makes a public proclamation to his claim to be the Messiah. Um, the language of verse 38 drips with messianic overtones. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And uh, they, they didn't fall on deaf ears with the, with the Pharisees. They knew what the claim was. And as he is asked to shut them up, his response is, it's too late, fellas. Um, what's happening now is of cosmic significance. He enters Jerusalem in a calculated way that would remove all doubt as to what he, what kind of claims he made about himself. Now, up to this moment, it had been vastly different. But now, Jesus engineers an event that would make it clear for everybody who was watching what he was claiming for himself. So, what, do you, what you find going on here is completely different from his ministry up to this moment. Now, the third thing that is, I think, noteworthy of this event here has to do with exactly uh, what it represents. And it's really bound up in one word of the text that you... Um, actually, there's a couple of little hints to it. But it's the word at, that you find at the end of verse 44... It's the word visitation. That is, and they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. It is hinted at in verse 42 when he says, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the time of visitation. That's that's a key word, ladies and gentlemen. It's a watchword in the in Hebrew vocabulary. Um, they knew a lot about this day of visitation. The Old Testament prophets had predicted a day of visitation. The Greek word, interestingly, is the word episcope, from which we get our English word episcopalian. It's a combination of a prefix and a, and a root word, scope. Scope, what does that sound like? To scope. And epi, which does nothing but intensify the word. An episcopos, an episcopos, and the word is translated bishop in the New Testament as well as visitation. But uh, an, an, an episcopos was someone who looked very carefully into the affairs of what was going on. He hyperscoped. That is, he would look very carefully, bringing a, a, a very uh, critical eye and a very a detailed scrutiny of everything that was going on. That's what the, in fact, ladies and gentlemen, in the church of our day, that's the, that's the role that a bishop performs in some ecclesiastical assemblies. He looks after things, as you can tell in the enormously sad Roman Catholic scandal that's going on and the man that's getting so much grief in Boston. Well, it was his job to look after the troops, to make sure that the troops were ready. It's almost like a, a general that visits his troops to see if they're ready for battle. And if he comes and he finds the troops that they're prepared and ready to go, then they're rewarded. But what would you expect on the part of the, the, uh, the bishop, the general, if the troops weren't ready? 
Well, Israel, ladies and gentlemen, loved the idea of a day of visitation. Let me tell you why. The last time there had been a day of visitation had come while they were slaves in Egypt. And, and you'll find that word, the Lord visited um, Israel while they were in Egypt. Well, of course, the result of that visit by Jehovah to Israel was their redemption and release from Egypt. And so all of Israel was looking forward to another day of visitation. Another day of bishoping. Another day when the bishop would arrive to investigate and, and to deliver. Just like he had way back in Egypt when they were our cruel, our cruel uh, tyrants. Well, they were looking for that day. They looked forward to that day. In fact, do you remember a part of the Easter story, excuse me, not Easter story, the Christmas story, is when John the Baptist is born. You remember that? And his father, Zacharias, breaks out into a song. And I'm reading you from Luke chapter 1, verse 68. And Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, says, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. What Zacharias is saying is that the visitation of of God is at hand. And it has been heralded by the birth of John the Baptist. So all of Judaism looked forward to the day of visitation. But it has just arrived. And they missed it. Jesus enters Jerusalem and um, weeps over the fact that the bishop has arrived and nobody's ready. If they had only known, he pleads. If they had only seen, he groans. And then he steps back and realizes what's about to happen in some 35 years where the city is going to be surrounded Um, An embankment is going to be built. The whole city is going to be leveled. Not one stone upon it is going to be left unturned. And in response to what the general saw, the great episkopos had arrived. The day of visitation was here. And the troops missed it. And that evokes from this king tears, which is really kind of the, the fourth part of what is so notable about this event. Um, it's not particularly notable, ladies and gentlemen, that Jesus wept. He did that before. In fact, um, if you've been in my home, I have two, uh, rem- they're, they're my prized possessions, uh, Two Rembrandt prints. Now, don't be impressed with Rembrandt. And when I say prints, these things cost $35 from a place that you got on, the, uh, on eBay. I mean, but it's a, it's a print. Uh, and it, both Rembrandt, and I brought one of them to church a couple of years ago, uh, that was framed beautifully. And it was the, remember the parable of the, uh, prodigal son? Well, that was the second one that I acquired. I've got a, I've got a, the first one I acquired is more famous than that one. At least it is for me. 
because uh, R.C. Sproul, a name that might be familiar to some of you, R.C. Sproul was in my office one day in Florida and saw this picture and, and remarked that it was the classic expression of Christian art. And he mentions my painting. <laughs> Actually, I didn't do it, but the one that I possess, he mentioned that painting in one of his books, that it was the classic expression of Christian art that he saw in this pastor's office, etc. Well, it's that one. And the one that, he's, that he alludes to, and the one that I'm alluding to, is a, is a portrait of the weeping prophet. And it's a picture of Jeremiah. Jeremiah looks old and, and forlorn, and he's leaning on his hand, and his elbow is, is resting on a Bible. And in the background, Jerusalem is burning. And, and Jeremiah, of course, you know, I think, is, was the prophet that kept uh, pleading with Israel. They kept pleading. He kept pleading with Israel, turn, turn. And she wouldn't. And finally, at the hands of the Babylonians, uh, Nebuchadnezzar sweeps in there, levels the place. And um, Jerusalem burns. And Jeremiah weeps. Well, 500 years or so later, Jesus weeps over the same city. The Prince of Peace comes to visit at the city of peace, Jerusalem, and finds no peace. And he weeps. He has he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Uh, as he stands before a stinking tomb, a symbol of this damned world that he was trafficking in. The loss of a a beloved friend. There there is a mention in Hebrews 5 that he weeps, which is really a reference to the Garden of Gethsemane experience. But this event is unlike those other two. It's unlike it in one very significant way, ladies and gentlemen. There is no better glimpse into the heart of Jesus Christ than what you see going on right here in this event. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the, the, the great bishop has arrived. The troops are not prepared. And he's entering it for the last seven days and will end up on a cross. And what does he do? He weeps. Why? Is he weeping because he's so concerned about what's about to happen to him? No. Now, the reason that he weeps... It's because he's so concerned about what's, what's about to happen to them. This reminded me, I don't know whether to remind you of it, but do you remember the parable in Mark 12? It's a parable about a, uh, a landowner who owns a vineyard and he leaves and he, he, he commits his vineyard to, to the safekeeping of somebody else. And, and so he, uh, it comes harvest time and so he sends people back to... Um, you know, to, to get his share of the harvest. And the people who are taking care of the vineyard take the, his representatives and beat them up and mistreat them and throw them out and on one occasion kill them. So the, so the landowner finally remembers or finally comes to the end of his rope and says, okay, I'm going to have to send my son over there to get, uh, you know, from the vineyard. I have to get it from my son. You know, I'm going to send my son over there. And so the son goes and, of course, they kill him too. Now here's my point. Imagine if you just imagine, just let your 
thoughts wander for a moment. Not from what I'm saying, but just look. Um, here's the son. And the father has sent him over to the vineyard. And he knows he's going to be tossed out and killed. And what is foremost on his mind? The fact that he's going to be killed? No. The thing that is foremost on his mind is the destruction of those who are going to kill him. My friends, as you watch those tears, and by the way, the word that's translated wept is a Greek word that indicates not just one little tear, but there's a bawling, there's a, there's a wailing going on on the part of the Savior. And as you watch those tears roll down his cheeks, I want you to know something. The gospel is being preached to you. Because the Son of Man comes to the city of peace. He finds no peace. And he understands that in about 35 years, the Romans are going to slaughter every living thing in that city. In fact, the, the renowned Jewish historian Josephus, Josephus describes what happens in 70 at Jerusalem. And it ain't pretty. In fact, I wouldn't even recommend that you read it. About, because all the terms that he uses. First, there's a famine. And then there's a slaughter of men, women, and children. And then there's the, uh, the, the city being torched. And then it's, in essence, bulldozed. And, and Jesus sees what's about to happen to the people who are going to kill him. And instead of being concerned about them killing him, He's concerned about what judgment is going to bring upon these people. What kind of God is that? What kind of God is more concerned about the judgment that will fall on sinners than the judgment that would fall on himself? Gang, what you find here is a Savior who willingly, knowingly, Plans, executes, engineers, architects, whatever you want to say. He know, he, 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 the whole idea originates with him. He walks into the place where he knows he will end his life. And in the midst of at least a little bit of semblance of triumph, people yelling and screaming and waving palm branches. What's he doing? He's crying. You know, instead of enjoying that moment of triumph, he turns it into a lament. Why? Because the idea of bringing about judgment on sinners is even repugnant to the one who will judge himself. That is, the, the judge himself finds judgment to be a strange and a sad and a horrible work. And the thought of it that races through his divine head to think what was about to happen at the hands of Titus and his Roman army as they inflict the judgment of God on, on the troops that weren't prepared. What does he do? Roll his shoulders back and say, you deserve a second of it. You're getting your comeuppance, you He knowingly 
rides a donkey into a city that's going to ultimately take his life. And his foremost concern is the judgment that's going to fall on them, not him. And he knows that if he doesn't go into that city, that no sinner will ever be forgiven. What kind of God grants forgiveness to people who hate him? Our God. Our God designs a a redemption, a means by which he, a, a way that he found to forgive sinners like us. Sinners who have such an offense with him at one point in their lives. But then by his grace, they're brought to see that this Savior is unlike anything they've ever known before. Ladies and gentlemen, kings don't cry, but ours does. I want to read you a quote from another king about this king. This is from Napoleon. He writes this. That French king writes this about our king. Everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me. And his will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world there is, between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He is truly a being by himself. I search in vain in history to find the similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. Neither history nor humanity nor the ages, nor nature offer me anything with which I am able to compare it or to explain it. With him, everything is extraordinary. Isn't that the truth? Guys, um, Napoleon rode into many cities. As a conquering hero. But he never wept over them. Only our Savior did that. Let me mention three things that I'm finished. First of all, if Jesus, this is almost too hard to say, but I'll, I mean, understand this is hypothetical. <laughs> if Jesus had never ever lived before, No one would have been able to invent him. If I'm going to invent a king, it's not going to be one who weeps over those who destroy him. I'm not going to create a king that weeps at all. Or at least if he weeps, he's going to do it in private so nobody can see it. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, what you have here, everything in this event is extraordinary. Because he is extraordinary. There is nothing to which I can compare him. 
There is no way that we can create him or invent him. Because there is no king like him. This is God. Secondly, ladies and gentlemen, what do you do when you look out over the city of Memphis? What do you do when you look out over your community? There ought to be a tear in our hearts, ladies and gentlemen. Josephus described the destruction of Jerusalem, and it is gory. But there's nothing as bad as the destruction of a human soul. What kind of emotions does that pull out of your heart? Got to get back to the NCAA games. Is there any interest, any grief, any burden that you share for men who will eventually, without Christ, be destroyed? Your Savior wept over that. And then thirdly, there's, a, there's an old German theologian that he's really not that trustworthy. Uh, You've got you to be careful about what you read about Moltmann. But, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce his first name. It's J-U-R-G-E-N. Jorgen, Jorgen Moltmann. But Moltmann said this, God weeps with us so that we may someday laugh with him. That is, our Savior has endured the required judgment so that you and I as sinners may weep no more. The Savior has wept with us, ladies and gentlemen, so that one day we will forever laugh with him. My brother and sister in Christ, Behold your king. Our Father, I do pray that as we gaze at the beauty of Jesus Christ, that our hearts might be altered, warmed, changed, modified, as we come in contact with divine beauty. As we see him in all of his loveliness, might, O God, our response be that of greater consecration and greater faith. And I pray, O God, that you will, if you have brought people here today who have not yet met Jesus Christ, who still wonder what Easter is all about and wonder why it is that we choose every Sunday, to come honor and venerate this one we call Jesus. If they have not yet understood that, might they, O oh God, see him in his, his exalted beauty in this story of the closing days of his life. Father, thank you for the privilege that is mine to placard Jesus Christ before the eyes of men and women Forgive me that I have done it so feebly. But Father, where there is any snatch of beauty, any ray of glory that men and women have gotten today, 
might you receive all the praise. And might men walk out of here marveling that they have such a Savior as the one portrayed here. We commit ourselves to you, Lord Jesus. We do so all over again. And long to see tomorrow be a day lived with more honor given you than was today. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.